Turn with me to the book of Zechariah this morning. Zechariah chapter number 4. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, one of the uh, prophets of the restoration in the Old Testament, prophesied during the building of the temple after the children of Israel had returned from Babylonian captivity. I want you to turn to the book of Zechariah chapter number 4. We're just going to read a few verses here, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. I hope the message is a help to you this morning. It encouraged me as I studied it. And uh, there's a particular verse that I've prayed about for a long, long time. Prayed the Lord will give me a sermon on. We'll see if He did this morning. Amen. <laughs> All right. Uh, Zechariah chapter number 4. Look with me at verse number 6. The Bible says, Then He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. I want to read just one more time verse number 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I want your will and way this morning. Lord, help me to be yielded as the preacher. Help those that are listening to be yielded as the hearers. Father, not yielded to one another, but yielded unto the Holy Ghost. Lord, I pray that you give me liberty this morning in the preaching. Give me power and unction. And Lord, I pray that you do a work that only you can accomplish. Make the words clear this morning, Lord, to the hearts of the hearers. Father, help us when we've left your house today to know that we've met with you and heard from your word. I'd ask, Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost... None done without Christ. Lord, pray that you'd convict them this morning. They'd come to you for salvation. And Lord, that you just meet every heart's need according to your perfect will. We love you this morning, Lord, and we ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we read in the book of Zechariah, I want to give you just a little bit of historical context before we get into the message. Zechariah would have prophesied during uh, the reign of Darius, uh, the king of the Medes and the Persians, in the Medo-Persian Empire. And he would have prophesied during the time in which the children of Israel, having returned from Babylonian captivity, would be rebuilding the temple. Much of Zechariah's prophecies uh, deal with the building of the temple. And this passage that we read is no different. But something you'll find as you study the Old Testament prophets, and particularly the minor prophets, is you'll find that they have a blended view of prophetic elements. Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? It means that they saw things in the future through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, but they saw them in a blended way or in a combined way, and that was part of the cause uh, for the Pharisees not understanding the premise of a suffering Savior. If you go through the book of Zechariah and many of the other Old Testament prophets, you'll find a view of immediate prophetic elements. Things that were going to take place within the next couple and three and four hundred years. 
You'll find things concerning the Gentile world and world empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, even the empire of the Antichrist that I believe is soon to come. You'll find elements of those prophetically dealt with. You'll find elements of our Lord's first advent or His first coming when He was born as a babe in a manger, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and came to save His people from their sins. You'll find elements of that. And uh, just in the same verse, or sometimes a verse or two later, you'll find elements of our Lord's glorious second coming. When He comes in power and glory on a white horse with a vesture dipped in blood and named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you'll find that all of these elements are sometimes swirled together in one unbroken prophecy. The book of Zechariah is no different. You'll find eight different nighttime visions in the book of Zechariah that extend sometimes from the next few years all the way to the time when eternity shall roll in ages and ages and ages and never an end will come near sight. You'll find all of these elements put together. As we read these few verses, the historical context of them concerns the finishing of the restoration temple. When the Jews came back, uh, they set about in the book of Ezra building and rebuilding the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And you'll find that they had opposition. You know, you do a work for God, you're always going to have opposition. And don't quit at the first sign of opposition. You'll never get anything done. Don't quit at the second, third, fourth, fifth, or five hundredth sign of opposition. Because even when the devil tempted our Lord and Savior, he only departed for a season. You're no better. You're going to face opposition when you do a work for God. And so the children of Israel began to face opposition. They got discouraged. They got lazy. And they left the temple half finished. Zerubbabel, that's mentioned in this passage, is a civil leader at this time. And uh, the word of the Lord is being given to him in the immediate context of it. The immediate context is dealing with the finishing of the restoration temple in Israel. Uh, there is a far-reaching prophetic context to it as well. Zerubbabel in many ways pictures Christ. And it uh, pictures the work of God in the person of Christ. Uh, what has been finished, what will be finished one day. It says there in uh, verse uh, number 9, it says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hand shall also finish it. This speaks not only of the work of Christ from the beginning of creation uh, till the end of time, but it speaks of the beginning of the work of Christ here on this earth, and of his death, and the soon coming of our Lord and Savior. It's a very broad theological spectrum, and there's a lot of things included in this passage. But as I read the Word of God, verse 7 has always jumped out at me. And I want to be very clear this morning in saying that what I want to preach, I believe, is a picture of something found in this passage. Look at it again. Who art thou, O great mountain? I want to answer that this morning, at least in an uh, applicatory sense. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone. I want you to notice that word headstone. Now, to me and you, that means one thing. And in the word of God, it means another. It's not necessarily, uh, well, I'll tell you what it's speaking of. They would have a chief cornerstone. They would have a foundation that they would lay in the building of the temple. But then ceremoniously, they would have a ceremony on the day that they laid the foundation. But then on the day came when the builders finally carried from the workshop that final hewn stone and they placed it finally upon the top of that temple. There'd be another ceremony and that was known as the headstone. 
The final stone to be put in place. The final effort to be exerted. The final work to be done. In the immediate context, it's saying that Zerubbabel has begun this work and he's going to finish this work. I believe in a prophetic sense, it's saying that our Lord started a work and he's the foundation. That's what the Bible says. And he's going to finish a work one of these days as well. But I got to thinking about that word headstone. I, I got to thinking about what it means to you and me. And most of us, we're familiar with that word headstone, but to us it, it holds the idea of a tombstone. And I got to thinking about this passage, and I think there's a parallel here. I understand it's not talking about a headstone, but I believe there's a parallel here to when the Lord finishes the work that He's doing and writes death over some enemies. I got to thinking about epitaphs. Epitaphs are an interesting thing. How many of you like going through uh, graveyards and a uh, bunch of weird people look at you? <laughs> no, I, I'm the same way, though. It's interesting. Walk through. Look at the gravestones. Look at the families. Look at the lifetimes. Uh, grave is the great equalizer in a lot of ways. You'll see lives that span only a few days, and you'll see lives sometimes that span over a century. And it's fascinating to me to read those uh, tombstones and those epitaphs. I've always been convicted when I thought about, you know, one of these days, if the Lord tarries, and they put me in the ground, my tombstone is going to say something on it. And it's going to have a little date that's going to tell when I was born, September 11th, 1987. That, that date's going to be on it. And there's going to be another date that's going to represent the day that I die and go home to be with the Lord if the Lord tarries. And the thing that denotes my life is that little dash in between it. One to reckon what that dash is going to represent for you and me. It's always convicted me to think of that. Our whole life summed up in a little dash. And isn't it uh, significant? And isn't it indicative of the life that we live? Our life is but a vapor, the Bible says. How are we going to make it count? But you read different epitaphs and you find some interesting things. I pulled up a few of these. I want to read them to you. Most of you have heard these. I mean, they're so old, they got dust on them and mold, amen. But some of you may not. They may be a blessing. And you can find some interesting things on epitaphs sometimes. I want to read a few of these to you. Uh, the epitaph of a man named John Penny in Wimborne, England, says, Reader, if cash thou art in want of any, dig four feet deep and find a penny. <laughs> amen. I like that. Some of these are old, I, I told you. I like this one. This, this interests me. In loving memory of Ellen Shannon, aged 25, who was accidentally burned March 21st, 1870, by the explosion of a lamp filled with R.E. Danworth's non-explosive burning fluid. <laughs> it's a shame litigation wasn't what it was back then. She could have had a settlement, couldn't she? Her family could have. This is an old one you've heard many times. It's the grave of a man in uh, Wetumpka, Alabama. Wetumpka, how would you like to live in Wetumpka, amen? Wetumpka, Alabama, man by the name of Solomon Pease. Most of you know it just by me saying that. It says, Solomon Pease. Here lies the grave of Solomon Pease. Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out, went home to God. I like that. <laughs> here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. Stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> <clears throat> Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. Let me give you one final one. This was probably my favorite. Here lies John Yeast, pardon me for not rising. <laughs> Epitaphs are an interesting thing to me. 
they sum up what a man's life is. But we find as we uh, study history that there was another type of epitaph that many times would be written. The ancient Greeks and Romans would have what they called trophies or monuments. On the day of a great battle, when many enemies had been slain and when a great work had been done and when the victory had been gained, many times on that battlefield they would raise up a monument and a statue to show that they had gained the victory. You know, I think in a lot of ways this headstone that they bring forth in a lot of ways is going to represent death's tombstone. Can I tell you there's going to be a day when death will reign no more. There's going to be a day when death won't have any hold on anyone anymore. There's going to be a day. We just had this past week the funeral of uh, Brother Mike Stringfield, George's cousin. And, you know, it's every funeral is unique and individual, uh, but there's some things that are universal to all of them. And it's always a difficult thing to see the family in mourning. And it's always a difficult thing to see the body in the casket. I, I know we all go by and say, boy, don't they look good and everything, but... But the Bible says that they're sown in weakness and in dishonor. I think anyone attending a funeral could, could realize that that's the case. No matter how, how good they look, they don't, they don't look like mama, do they? Or they don't look like daddy, or they don't look like your brother or your friend anymore. There's something heartbreaking about a funeral. It's the separation of it. But thank God that there's coming a day that the undertakers will be put out of business. Thank the Lord that there's coming a day when death will have no more rain. I like what the old songwriter says, not one little grave over there. I'm looking forward to that day. As I read this passage, there's a few thoughts that jumped out to me. I just want to give them to you real quick this morning. And I thought about Zerubbabel standing in the face of this mountain. For Zerubbabel, this mountain pictured the adversity and the obstacles to the completion of the temple. It represented to him the things that had to be overcome, the, the ultimate enemy that had to be defeated for the work of God to be completed. And the Bible says that this mountain will become a plain before Zerubbabel. In a miraculous way, the victory will be won and the work will be done. I got to thinking, you know, in a lot of ways, at least for me, that mountain is a picture of death. You know, death is really, and I know we say the devil is the ultimate enemy, and I understand what we mean by that. But, you know, the devil is never going to be completely done away with. He's going to be condemned and cast into a lake of fire, and he's going to burn eternally. Death is not a uh, actual person. It's not a, it's personified sometimes, but death is an event that takes place. And the Bible teaches that though the devil will be cast into the lake of fire and burn eternally, that death is something one day, that mountain will become a plain. It'll be completely eradicated and completely gone. And I got to thinking about what a mountain is. And you know, death has a lot of likenesses like this mountain. I want you to notice first off that this mountain was impassable. It was a mountain standing for Zerubbabel. And the only way for it to be overcome was for it to be made a plain. It could not be crossed over. Can I tell you this morning that death for the human being, barring except, of course, the coming of our Lord and Savior, but for the human being, death is an unavoidable thing. Unavoidable. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, and it is appointed unto men once to die. I understand that Enoch walked with God and then was not. I understand that Elijah was carried up in a whirlwind to heaven. Uh, but for the typical man, there is no way to avoid death. You can try as you may. We have medical science like you would not believe today. I mean, it's amazing what they can do in medical science. 
They can take a man's heart out of his body, lay it on a table, work on it, put it back in, and it beats again. That's remarkable. They can take bodily organs out of a person and put the organs from another person into them, and they function. That's remarkable. They can study the brain and map the brain. They can cut a man's head open and go into his brain and perform surgery, the most delicate area of the human physiology. And they can go in there. Human beings can go in there and work on it. That's remarkable. But try as they may, no man can pass over death. Try as they may. They may extend life for some time, but no man can pass by death. It was said of John Rockefeller whenever he began to die uh, and he was getting down real bad sick that he gave a public offer that he'd give half of his fortune to any man that could add a year to his life. No man took that offer. Do you know that you and me, we don't have the power over death. In and of ourselves, we do not have the power over death. Death will always be a reality to the human experience. It is impassable. You can take all the medicine you want. You can take all the... Sometimes I wonder if that medicine really helps anyway. Amen? You can take all the medicine you want. You can exercise all you want. I mean, people say, why don't you exercise more? Because if I'm going to die, I'm going to die happy. Amen? I'm going to die happy. Give me double bacon on my burger. I'll die happy. But the reality is this. There's nothing we can do ultimately. We may put it off. We may, through the way that we live and the things that we do in our life, we may put it off a little ways. But death is an impassable reality. I want to give you a second thing I see about this mountain that reminds me of death, is that this mountain was impenetrable. Today, in this day that we live in, we tunnel through mountains. If you've ever gone up to Kentucky and passed through the Cumberland Tunnel, that you're going through a mountain. If you go up to Gatlinburg and you go through the tunnel headed, headed out of Gatlinburg, you're going through a mountain. But in this day that Zerubbabel lived in, the technology, the capacity to pass through this great mountain was beyond their reach. Do you know that in this day that we live in, not only can we not avoid death, but in and of ourselves, listen carefully, in and of ourselves, we cannot go through death and come out the other side. It's interesting that no man in the Word of God other than our Lord and Savior ever raised himself from the dead. Every man in the Word of God that was raised from the dead was raised by the power of God, not the power of His own ability, not the power of His own wisdom, not the power of His own finances. It is no within the capacity of man and of himself to die and raise again. That's what Job asked the question, didn't he? In Job 14, 14, he said, If a man die, shall he live again? Shall he live again? Why do you think Job asked that? Because it is a stark reality that once a man is dead, the book of Job says, Where a tree falls, it lies. Wherever that tree falls, there it stays. And if a man, listen to me this morning, if a man dies without Christ, he stays without Christ. Hear me that this morning? If a man accepts Christ and is born again from that moment eternally, he's Christ and Christ is his. But if a man dies without Christ, if a man dies never having called upon the name of the Lord and pleaded forgiveness and repented of their sins, if they've never turned to Christ and they die, they stay without Christ. They stay dead in their sins. You can't pray them out. I know the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you can, but that's a heresy straight out of the pit of hell. You won't find a lick of that in the Bible. Not a lick of it. And even even the Roman Catholics know that because they had to institute it by, by papal bull or papal edict. They couldn't even find a passage to try to, to, to twist around to make it mean purgatory. They just had to say, this is just what we think it is. Purgatory is not a scriptural doctrine. Reincarnation is not a scriptural doctrine. You'll find that nowhere. 
Bless their hearts. Think all them poor people in India running around, skinny as all get out, all them cows walking around. Won't even meet them because they're afraid it might be their uncle. Amen. I got bad news for you, neighbor. If I was as skinny as they are, I don't care if you're my uncle or not. Your time has come and gone. Amen. I just, you know, I, I just would pick the fattest uncle I got so that, that meat be good and rich. Amen. Boy, you ever you ever come to church at Walridge and think things just got weird in here? You ever think about that? I, how's that happening? <laughs> hey, man. The fact of the matter is reincarnation is not a reality. Once a man dies, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Death is an impenetrable thing. Let me give you a third thing, that this was an immovable mountain. Couldn't pass over it, couldn't go through it, but they couldn't move that mountain. The obstacle could not be taken out of the way. Do you know it's not just that we can't avoid death, it's not just that we can't go through death and raise again in and of ourselves, but no human being has the capacity to abolish death. It's plagued mankind. The Bible says it's rain from Adam until now. In fact, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter number 5. I want you to see what it says very carefully. I think this is an explicit truth. I think we ought to get it from God's Word. Romans chapter 5, verse number 12 says, Wherefore has by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, now listen carefully to this, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. You say, preacher, why Adam to Moses? Because the immediate context that uh, Paul is writing about in the book of Romans is the correlation between sin and death. And what he's saying is this, of course, in the Old Testament law, it says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We understand that there's a death penalty spiritually for a human being because he has a sin nature. But Paul's saying even before there was an Old Testament law, even before it was written down, sin still had power through death, and death still reigned even from Adam until Moses, and certainly from Moses even until this day in the month of uh, June in 2013. Death still reigns today. Still reigns today. You name me one member of your family that has died and rose again. You You name me. Go two generations back three generations back, four generations back. Find me one that has escaped death. Find me someone that could abolish and do away with death. You'll find no human being with that capacity. It's impossible. It is beyond our reach. Do you understand me? All through uh, humanity, people have been fascinated with the idea of defeating death. And if you uh, read, and I don't suggest this necessarily, but if you find yourself reading Roman and Greek mythology and find uh, yourself reading uh, ancient writings, you'll find that a obsessive theme they had was destroying and getting rid of death, finding some way to avoid it. Can I say, oh, we're going to preach on this here in a moment, but can I say, thank the Lord that for the believer there's no fear of death. No fear of death. The pagan world fears death. The unregenerate Pharisee fears death. But the Christian does not have to fear death. There's no fear of it. We see that this mountain in a lot of ways presents to us death. But I'd say to you secondly that Zerubbabel, the man that is the subject of this passage, in a lot of ways he presents to us our deliverer, Jesus Christ. 
Zerubbabel in many ways pictures Jesus Christ, but as it correlates to death, I just want to give you three things that, that, that strike my heart that I think about. And I want you to notice, first off, that he pictures Christ in the meeting of death. Notice that the Bible says that that mountain stood before Zerubbabel. In other words, here's Zerubbabel standing at the foot of this mountain, facing this mountain down. Zerubbabel did not run from this mountain. He did not flee from this mountain. He did not make excuses to not face this mountain. But he stepped out and met this mountain head on. Do you know that same thing is true of our Lord and Savior? In Hebrews chapter 2, I want you to look with me in Hebrews chapter number 2. And I want you to look at verses 14 and 15. You can catch up with me when you get there. The Bible says, for we are made partakers of Christ. And that's in chapter 3 in a good verse 2, amen, but that's not where we're reading. <laughs> Look at verse number 14, chapter 2. It says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil." Aren't you thankful that Christ met death on death's territory? Aren't you thankful our Lord and Savior? You see it over and over and over again in the Gospels. You find the disciples coming to our Lord and saying, you know, you don't have to do this. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify you. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to take your life. If you go to Jerusalem, that's all she wrote, Lord. That's it. You're done if you go to Jerusalem. You know what our Lord said? I like this. He said, for this hour came I into the world. He said, you don't get it, boys, but this is why I'm here. I'm not here to open blinded eyes. I'm not here to raise the lame. I'm not here to loose dumb tongues and open deaf ears. Those are things I do. But that's not why I'm here. Christ had a lot of hours in His ministry. You know that? He had the hour when He took uh, the young man that had a demon and had cast himself off into the water and into the fire and He released that demon from me, cast that demon out of that young man and helped that poor, humble father's unbelief. That was a great hour. He had times when He broke the fish and the bread and provided for those that were following Him. That was a great hour. He had His first miracle in Cana of Galilee when He turned the water into wine. That was a that was a great hour. But that wasn't the hour. That wasn't the thing. When he said for this hour, he wasn't talking about the miracle in Cana. He wasn't hey, listen, when he said this hour, he wasn't talking about when he pulled the fish out of the sea and took the coin out of his mouth. When he said this hour, he wasn't talking about the occasions when he calmed the, the troubled sea. He wasn't talking about that. When he said this hour, he he wasn't talking about when a maniac in Gadara ran from the graveyards and the tomb of his own sorrow and torment and fell at the face of our Lord and Savior and our Lord cast a legion of demons at him. He wasn't talking about that hour. He wasn't talking about that hour when he stood at a fresh tomb beside friends and told him to roll the stone away. Cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come forth! Oh, what an hour that was! Oh, what glory that must have been! He told him, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. That's a wonderful hour. But those aren't the hours he came for. For this hour, for this thing came I into the world. And now, shall I pray, Lord, deliver me from this hour? On dark Calvary's hill.
He bore the cross. The old commentators called that road the Via Dolorosa. The road of sorrows. The road of loneliness. He took that rugged cross on his back. Bore it up that hill. Till he could go no further. And they compelled Simon the Cyrenian, to come and take up his cross and follow him. They took him up and they laid him down upon that cross and drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. There with a crown of thorns, hung naked and shameful before the world, a bloody and beaten and broken Savior dying for the sins of the world. That's the hour he came for. That's the hour he came. He didn't come for the hours of glory when they uh, thought to take him by force and force him to be the king. He didn't come for the hours of glory when the voices thundered from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye Him, and this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He didn't come for the hour when the dove lighted from heaven the Holy Spirit of God and rested upon Him. But dark Calvary is what He came for. He came to die for your sins and mine. He came for the earthquake that rent the rocks. He came for the rending of the temple veil. He came, he came for the darkness that shaded and covered the entire earth, the entire earth when the God of heaven in all of his holiness and judgment turned his back on his own very son and he cried out and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The time when he met death at death's door and stood him down and won the victory for you and for me. That's the hour that he came for in the meeting of it. But I want you to notice, I believe that Zerubbabel pictures Christ in the meeting of death, but in the means of this victory too. I'm I'm not a what would you call a a temple builder? Tempologist? I don't know, Charlie. I don't know where the architect got the rocks, and I'm not an architect. Most of the time though, if you get a rock, you dig it out of a mountain. <laughs> That's where you get it from. Wonder how it was. Listen carefully. Wonder how it was that that mountain became a plain for Zerubbabel. I kind of believe that that mountain became the very stones that were the building of the temple. Listen again to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. I like this. Listen carefully. It says, I've already turned back here, amen. I'm getting too worked up. <laughs> Look what it says in verse number 14. It says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He took part of flesh and blood. That through death, through death, through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through death. He destroyed death. That's the great victory of our Lord and Savior. When He sought to do away with the law, He in the likeness of sinful flesh condemned the law through His righteousness. When He sought to do away with the Old Testament law, He didn't come, oh, I know, I know He said, I'm not come to do away from the law. I understand that. But when He came to bring a better and newer way, He didn't do it by coming and subverting the law. He did it by fulfilling the law. Through partaking, he gained the victory. When he sought to gain the adversary and to gain the champion over death, you know how he did it? He did it through his death. He died on a rugged cross. But you know something interesting? The mountain became a plain before Zerubbabel. 
Death was no challenge for our Lord. They took him off that cross, bloody and beaten, naked and shameful. A man named Joseph of Arimathea. I like this. I was listening to old Harold Seitler preach the other day. You know what he said? I like this. He's talking about Christ being... This is extra, okay? Just pay attention. He's talking about Christ being buried for our sanctification. He said they buried our Lord's body in a Sadducee's tomb from which there is no resurrection. <laughs> That's where he put our sins. That's where he put our sins. That's where he put our transgressions and our unrighteousness in a dead and dark tomb from which there is no resurrection. Hallelujah today for the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord. He was buried. Joseph took him off the cross and the women came and and put the spices and the balms, put the frankincense and the myrrh on him. They laid him in that tomb. Oh, how crushed they felt. Oh, how distraught they must have been. You see it. Peter walked away from it all. Oh, how crushed and how broken they must have been. And surely the devil flaunted in the face of the disciples and said, Death won again. Death won again. They had lost someone dearer to them than flesh and blood. They had lost someone that meant more to them than their own kith and kin. And I'm sure that death snarled and bore his teeth and said, I want again, I want again, I want again, I want again. No stirring in that tomb for three days and three nights. The hearts of the disciples despondent and broken. <laughs> oh my. I don't know how it happened. I wasn't there. I know it happened, but I don't know how it happened. But I, I know the Bible says that on that third day, on that third day, you know what he did? Did he lay there a little longer? Did, did, did he lay there a little longer? What did he do on that third day? What did he do as death boasted himself? What did he do as the devil flaunted his power? What did he do? Our Lord and Savior, he did not lie there, but he got up from the grave, broke the devil's crown, took death's scepter, and claimed the victory over the grave that day. Through death, he gained the victory. Through death, he bought our pardon. Through death, he destroyed death. He took the means of the mountain used it to build a temple. <laughs> I think Zerubbabel pictures our Lord because of the meeting that we see taking place. He met death. I think he pictures our Lord uh, because of the means uh, or the manner and the means of it. But I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. This is what I really want you to get. I, I know I've gone on too long as it is, but you stick with me for just a moment. If it goes too long, Brother Carey will buy you lunch. Romans chapter number 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 14. How is it? How is it that he defeated death? He, he did. The manner was through death. But what, what were the means? What, what, what did he use to defeat death? This is where it comes together. Look with me at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offering of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. 
Look at verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. You know how he was it that he defeated death? They talk about it, verse number 7, Zechariah chapter 4. They bring that headstone out. They bring that headstone from the worker's shop. They bring that headstone out. And you know what the people are doing? I know it says that they're crying this, and I believe they are crying this, but I kind of believe we... I mean, hey, listen, if I'm wrong, if you read some commentator and he proves this hillbilly preacher wrong, you just don't even tell me. I want to believe this so bad. I kind of believe they're not just crying it out. I kind of believe they're reading it on that headstone. And they're crying out. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, grace, grace unto it. How was it that our Lord defeated death? He did it by grace. He did it by grace. What do you mean, preacher, he did it by grace? He looked down on a sin-sick world that had no means of defeating death and of abolishing sin. He looked down on a broken and sinful and lost world and he could have had judgment. He could have had, uh, he could have looked in judgment. He could have looked away. He could have said, no, I will not help them, but instead, instead, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How did he gain the victory? I think it's very simple. Through grace, through the ultimate judgment that Christ will inflict upon this world. And you know there's only two categories. Only two categories of people in this world lost and saved. You know there's <laughs> you know there's gonna come a day when all the lost folks this is so simple. All the lost folks are gonna be in hell in the lake of fire. And though they're there in an eternal second death, they'll never die anymore. You know what I mean by saying that? They'll have no need of death. They're in the second death. And who's that going to leave on earth? That's going to leave those that have been saved by the grace of God. You know how you put someone out of business? You do it by relieving them of their clientele. (laughs) That's how you put someone out of business. I I mean, I'll tell you the best way. Uh, Brother Max, he's working at the car lot. I'll tell you the best way to put the used car business out of sale or out of business is to give them all new cars, right? We're going to go here to the restaurant after church. I am. I don't know what you're doing. I am. You know how you'd put the restaurant out of business? If you gave everybody full bellies, they had no need for it. You know how our Lord defeated death? (laughs) In that day when man dies no more, there's no need for death. The Lord, by grace, removed death's clientele. Did away with the grave. Did away with the undertakers. Did away with the hearses. Did away with the pain. Did away with the sorrow. Did away with the funeral homes. Our Lord, by grace, by redeeming a lost and fallen man and giving him a new birth and a new life and one day a glorified body has done away effectually with death. He's done away with it. And what used to be an obstacle in a mountain has now become a plane, a place of traveling. What used to hinder, what used to be the end, is now the doorway. (laughs) There's one last thing. I'm just going to give this to you. I'm going to read one passage and give this to you. I believe that the mountain represents death in a lot of ways. I believe Zerubbabel represents to us Christ, our deliverer in a lot of ways. But I believe this final day, when they take this headstone and place it upon the temple and the work is com- the work is completed and it's all done, I think in a lot of ways that presents to us the idea of the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is a pretty broad theological term concerning prophetic things. Now, that doesn't mean it means many different things, but it means the scope of the day of the Lord and its application is pretty fair. There's times when the day of the Lord seems to speak of the rapture. There's times when the day of the Lord, in fact, the majority of the times the day of the Lord seems to be referring to the glorious second coming of our Lord and Savior. But you'll find sometimes the day of the Lord extends further into the millennial kingdom. And you'll find that there's even times when the day of the Lord is spoken of and it's not referencing the rapture and it's not referencing the second coming of our Lord in power and in glory and it's not referencing the millennial kingdom, but it's representing and referencing that time in eternity future. When the city of God is dwelling on this earth, there is no sun, the Lamb is the light, there is no night time. And I think as I read this, you know, there's coming a crowning day. There's coming a day when the work will be commenced. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn with me there, and uh, this will be the last passage that we read. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to look with me, if you don't mind. Look down in verse number 24. This is speaking of the resurrection. Uh, there's two resurrections spoken of in the Word of God. I don't believe in a general resurrection. I believe that it's scriptural to believe in two separate resurrections, a resurrection of the saved and a resurrection of the unsaved. But notice it's speaking of the process and the order of the resurrections. And look with me in verse number uh, 20. We'll start at verse number 20. The Bible says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Look at verse 24. Then cometh the end. The end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Look at verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The Word of God teaches us that death has already been abolished, but it's not been destroyed yet. We still face death. It's still a reality for us. We do not have to be in bondage under the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15 says. We've been delivered from that. Because we know that death holds no fear for us. We're born again, washed in the blood, and we're promised an eternity with Christ. But death is still a reality to us. And you'll find that as it's being spoken of, the finish, the commencing, the done work of God in Zechariah chapter 4, it cannot just be speaking of the glorious coming of our Lord, because the millennial kingdom is to follow. And it cannot even be speaking of the millennial kingdom, because at the end of the millennial kingdom... Uh, we find that there is the battle of Gog and Magog that will take place and the great white throne judgment. And so the very last stone, that final headstone, that final rock that's put into place can be speaking only of that time and eternity future when the world and the earth belong to God and when He reigns eternally. That's what it means when it says, Then cometh the end. He's not put all his enemies under his feet until the great white throne judgment. Until the battle of Gog and Magog, he's not put all enemies under his feet yet. But after all those enemies have been put under his feet, after everything is done, after every enemy has been judged, after everything is done, the dead are uh, in hell, uh, the dead are lost and eternally in hell and eternally dead, eternally dying, you know what I mean. We find that there's one last enemy 
What do you think that last final headstone is? I kind of think that's when the Lord comes and plants a tombstone over death's own grave and says, done. What will that tombstone read? How did it happen? Grace. Grace unto it. Grace is how it was accomplished. There's coming a day when we'll hear... There's coming a day when we'll hear no more funeral songs. There's coming a day when we'll have no parting from loved ones. There's coming a day when mourning will not grip our souls, when parting will not devastate us. There's coming a day when that last enemy... So I thought the last enemy was the devil. No, the devil's already been thrown into the lake of fire. The last enemy is death. Oh, how thankful I am that there's coming a day. You may have dealt with some with losing someone lately. I know, I know Brother George has, and, and a lot of us loved Mike. He meant, he meant a lot to us. But there may be some of you that have, have also dealt with, with having lost someone close to you here lately. You may have lost someone a long time ago. You know, it never, you know, you never get over it. You just kind of get used to it. Does that make sense to you? You never have a time when you don't think about someone you've lost. It just may get less frequent, but you always think about them. Maybe there's someone that you've lost and it's grieved and discouraged your soul. Can I encourage you today by saying that you may visit their tombstone, but there's coming a day when death himself will have his own. And there's coming a day when the victory will be evident. There's coming a day when death will be destroyed. If you're here today and you're lost without Christ, death will have the ultimate victory over you if you don't turn to Christ. But through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through the grace of God, we can have the victory over death. This morning, don't leave this place without knowing for sure that death will not have that victory over you.